Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Imagine a place where you can listen to trendy chefs and bartenders sharing their secrets behind the scenes, where they are talking about their paths to success, where you can get tricks from the kitchen or from behind the bar. In fact, you can get it all here on my podcast, Flavors Unknown. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. Thank you very much for listening today. Every other week, I interview chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to discover their secrets behind the scenes. Today is episode 16, and as usual, you can find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. Click on the episode page. My guest today is Chef Alex Harrell from the Elysian Bar in New Orleans. When I think about Chef Alex Harrell, I think about local ingredients and the celebration of Southern cooking. We talk in this episode about the emotional moment in his career when he had to close Angeline, a restaurant in New Orleans where he was the owner. We talk as well about his new um, adventure at the Elysian Bar, his creative process, and Chef Alex Harrell will give us at the end of the podcast some tips on how to prepare pork chops with a southern flair. We first met, I think it was three years ago in New Orleans for the first time. And since I had the opportunity to eat several times at Andaline, that was always like a great, you know, experience. Unfortunately, you know, we know the restaurant you know, has closed, you know, since, but I'm really glad that we are able to talk uh, together and that you have accepted to be uh, a guest on my uh, podcast, Flavors Unknown. So welcome. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, that's, it's exciting. And I really appreciate you inviting me uh, to come and be a guest. I, I want to come back a little bit in time. So I, I read like several years back, you were part of a group of young chefs yeah, you challenged the statu quo in New Orleans at that time by adapting the traditional cuisine from the South and leveraging seasonal local ingredients. You started at Sylvain, then you had the famous Angeline, and now you are the Elysian Bar. So can you tell us more about your approach and how you have modernized your recipes while staying true to the flavors from the South? Sure, especially when it relates to... Cooking in New Orleans, I think you have to be, you always have to be very mindful and respectful of history and tradition. And with both Sylvain and Angeline being in the French Quarter, which is kind of the heart of New Orleans cuisine, you, you really wanted to be, make sure that you were, you were paying respect. You always have to kind of focus when you're, when you're creating, you want to make sure that you, Keep that in mind when designing food, because I'm not just cooking for you know guests who are coming to the city. It's also you know you're cooking for the residents of of New Orleans as well, and so that was always part of the approach, just making sure that you're you you stay mindful of that. But then for me, it's really the process is mostly ingredient based and. I start with 
ingredients that I'm interested in using. And then I think about the technique that I want to adapt in preparation. And then I kind of build the different menu items around that. And keeping always focusing on on seasonal and local product as much as possible and always giving a high priority to local seafood. It's something that that I really enjoy cooking. It's part a huge part of local cuisine in town. Today we we hear a lot about southern revival. There's a lot of things happening in the large, you know, south here in the US. I did relate to the culinary scene. What, what does that mean for you? I was born in, in South Alabama. So Southern food has always been a huge part of my personal kind of journey into cooking. I was fortunate enough, my grandparents had a large farm and grew a lot of their own vegetables. And my grandmother was always preserving and canning and pickling. And, and so I learned a lot of that from her. And it was just, it became part of kind of my repertoire. For me, Southern food has always been there. And I think when when people start talking about Southern revival, they're really taking a look at regional food from, you know, a little bit of a historical perspective. A lot of people's perception of Southern cooking is that it's very overwrought with with fat and it's, it's bacon this and Butter biscuits that. and gravy and butter that and fried chicken. And, and that's really not the case. If you look at it from kind of a historical standpoint, it was always very vegetable-based and very grain-derived. And, and from rices in Charleston to the rice culture in southwest Louisiana, also the people who settled within the region played a huge part in shaping the direction of of Southern food. They came from Europe and obviously from the Caribbean and different influences, you know, Western African. They adapted to what they had locally and seasonally within their food food culture. So it's a huge melting pot of different tradition, different technique and different styles that really has kind of grown into what modern Southern cooking is. And I think that's the, the key to it all, is looking at, at tradition and history and being respectful of the people who were here before us that really drove that style of cooking. And just keeping it, keeping it light, keeping it very flavor forward, the introduction of you know, maybe new technique in preparation but approaching it from that mindset, I think, is what drives a lot of the kind of modern Southern revival. But uh, wouldn't you say that in uh, recent past years, about maybe five to eight years, we have seen more chefs like yourself elevating those local ingredients much more than it was, you know, in the past. So you're talking, you know, about corn, you're talking about the sorghum, there's, you know, a lot of other ingredients now that we see features in um, menus from a lot of chefs popping up around the South, which is like relatively new. It is. And I think a lot of that has to do with people kind of reviving some of those ingredients. For a long time, you know, if they weren't in the South, if it wasn't commercially viable to plant and grow for revenue, certain crops just weren't, weren't grown anymore. They might have been grown in in small scale for private consumption, but 
now that there has been this interest, the accessibility to unique traditional Southern ingredients really has. For example, in, in New Orleans, prior to Katrina, there really weren't that many local farms that, that had availability for chefs. Katrina really opened up opportunity for some of the produce that's always been grown around the area to find its way into the city through farmers markets and CSAs and small urban gardens. And it really exposed a lot of chefs within the city to that availability and, and helped them change, helped them grow in ways that they possibly hadn't prior. What is your point of view about you know chefs that are incorporating into new dishes influence that come from different ethnic background, like Vietnamese in New Orleans or Korean in Kentucky or Indian in Memphis and, and so on? What's your point of view on this? I, I think it's really exciting. And that's, that's kind of what, what I alluded to previously is, is all of those ethnic groups are part of the greater South. They're here and they, they've shared their history and their, their culture and their tradition. And seeing Southern chefs pick up on that and pay respect for that and appreciate that, it's really exciting. And I think that's the future of where Southern food is going. And I think that's why people, it turns on a light for people across the, the country and across the world. It's like, it's not just what we thought overcooked vegetables ham and bacon and the fried chicken and sweet tea. It's Southern food has a depth and it has a complexity. And I think that's what, that's what really excites people about modern Southern cooking. Let's go back in time for a bit. I, I'm curious to hear about what compel you to become, become a chef. <laughs> I never intended to cook for a living that it was not it was not my focus i never had really <laughs> i never had a conscious thought about it i actually was in school studying biology and so i my focus was environmental science ecology freshwater systems that sort of stuff i really wanted to go into field research and kind of restoration of habitat and, and that sort of thing from an wow. environmental science standpoint. We always cooked in my family. And like I said, my grandparents had, you know, I grew up going to their farm, which was 30 minutes away from my hometown. And I spent as much time as I possibly could down there fishing in, in the ponds and, you know, digging around in the gardens and planting and cooking with my grandmother and, and learning those things. But I was aware that people cooked for a living. I knew it was a career, but I never really, really considered it. So what happened? Well, I, <laughs> I got, I was doing postgraduate studies at the University of Alabama. I, quite frankly, I got, I got tired of academic life and I just wanted to take a break. My thought was, I'm going to take a summer off and I'm just going to go work. It just so happened to coincide with summer that a family friend was opening a small seafood restaurant in Northwest Florida. They invited me to, to come down and help open and work in the restaurant. And 
the kind of the sticking, the kicker of it all was they were going to give me a free place to live on the beach or at the beach. And I thought, this is great. I can, I can have a summer paid for. I won't have any, you know, overhead. I won't have any, any bills. And all I have to do is work in a restaurant. This is going to be incredible. You know, I can't pass this up. I had no idea what the work entailed. I didn't know how difficult it was. I got in there and it was something, something really connected with me. Once I was, I was in the kitchen, I, I really enjoyed the work. I still didn't really consider it as a full-time job. But after the summer ended, I decided to move back to Birmingham, Alabama. I enjoyed working. I enjoyed being out. I still kind of wanted to take a little bit more time away from academic life. And so I found another restaurant job. And one thing led to another. And I wound up about a year and a half later in New Orleans. And at that point, I was really starting to focus on the fact that, okay, I can. I can do that. <laughs> I can do this. I enjoy this. I enjoy the physicality of the work. I enjoy the camaraderie. I really enjoy the team aspect. I grew up playing a lot of team sports. And so that was something that connected with me. I kind of enjoyed that lifestyle, working at night and, you know, being out with with friends after work. And then, you know, so it, it fit kind of at the time what I was looking for. And then I I realized that I had a connection to food through science. And it fulfilled cooking helped to fulfill my interest in in science. I began to relate to food that way. And it it just it just worked. Did you go to get like a, a degree in and in a culinary school or did you start an apprenticeship in different restaurants? That was that was basically it. I just started working. I continued working in restaurants. I, I never went to culinary school. I considered it a couple of times, but then I, the, I always the biology went back to the degree fact, was enough. <laughs> yeah, well I and that was it. I felt like okay, I'd be I'm I'm going back into an academic kind of lifestyle. And even if it was for a short time, I was so interested in just working. I was, you know, I was earning a paycheck. It was a very small paycheck, but I was still earning one. And I just applied my method of study, you know, the way I studied biology, I applied that to my career and, and to cooking. Oh, that's interesting. So, so can you further develop this? I read a lot. I realized that I was, I had, I was at a deficit compared to other cooks who had been doing it longer than me and the ones that had gone to culinary school. So I read a lot of the, the textbooks and the curriculum-based books from the Culinary Institute. I started reading other cookbooks, anything I could kind of get my hands on, and I would formulate questions as they related to the work I was doing, you know, whatever station I was working, if it was Gourmet I would go in and I would ask questions as to to the chef. And I used to drive people crazy, like other cooks. I would sit there and try to gather as much information from them as I possibly could while we were working. And there were times they'd tell me to shut up and leave them alone. And, you know, I'm <laughs> sure I drove, I drove the sous chefs and the chefs that I worked for crazy because I was, I was always asking questions. I learned a lot through that process. I also learned a lot through the multiple failures, missed attempts that, that I would make, you know, the times that I would mess up and, and somebody would, 
yell at you. And I jokingly tell people that I quickly learned that if I didn't want people to yell at me all the time, that I really needed to get a lot better, a lot quicker. Did you have people that influenced you uh, through that process? You had like mentors that, you know, help you? Yeah, absolutely. First chef that I worked for in New Orleans was Susan Spicer at Biona. I was there for about, I guess about 18 months. That was kind of like graduate school for me. Just what I learned, I still, there's certain things that I do on a daily basis, and I can still hear her instructing me in my, in my head. I still hear her voice instructing me the first time on how to do those, those things and why you do those things. She's an incredible mentor to so many chefs that have come up through New Orleans. You know, she, she played a huge, huge role of kind of setting me on the path, showing me the direction, teaching me how to operate within a, a professional kitchen. And then from her, I started working for a chef named Gerard Maris. And Gerard is really the chef that I consider to be my mentor. I started out working for him as a, as a garmage prep cook and worked my way up to being his chef de cuisine. And so we spent about seven years together all total. He approached operating and running kitchen from the mindset of a teacher. He really took the time, explained things to, to demonstrate and to show us. And he was really one of the first chefs in the city to work with small farms. He had a small farm over on the north side of, of Lake Pontchartrain, and he would bring in fresh eggs from his coop. He and his wife grew edible flowers and micro sprouts and shoots and arugula and lettuces and all the stuff that we kind of used in the garmage. And it was something that was incredibly mind, you know, just it really opened me up to what it means to cook seasonally, how to use local product and how to apply kind of classic technique to what you're doing, but keeping it thinking and, and kind of forward looking. And so giving it more of a contemporary spin. He hates it when I call him my mentor, but he certainly was. We've remained close. I call him from time to time and, and just ask him questions and, you know, kind of seek out guidance and suggestions. And he was really, he was really the, the driving force in taking someone like me who is really eager, driven to get better and showing us what it what it really meant, teaching us what it really meant to be a professional chef. Did you go from uh, that place to um, then uh, Sylvain? No, I actually, I left working with him right after Katrina. Gosh, I guess it was 2006, 2007, somewhere in there. And I moved to Charleston, South Carolina for a three for three years. Okay. And I worked in Charleston up there as a sous chef for a while and then an executive chef. And then New Orleans, as it does to so many people, called me, called me back, started calling me back. And I had the opportunity to interview for the the Sylvain job and was hired and, and started there in two thousand and in May of two thousand and ten. 
how was the food at Sylvain, you know, different? So let's say the difference between, uh, you know, Sylvain and uh, Angeline and now Elysian Bar. If you can describe like maybe the top line, you know, for the, those three places. When Sylvain opened, the intention was for it to be a bar, a great cocktail bar. And so we really, we opened up with a couple of sandwiches, you know, a couple of little kind of bistro preparations, some different kind of Southern influenced menu items kind of sprinkled in to kind of round it out a little bit. It started to grow. And as people started to come to dine with us, we really saw the opportunity to kind of push what we were doing in the kitchen. It was still meant to be very approachable and accessible and and casual and fun. But we we started kind of growing the repertoire. You know, the work that we all did at Sylvain was pretty amazing. That kitchen was only, gosh, it was about 300 square feet, 400 square feet. So it's a very tiny space. So we really had to focus on economy and efficiency and utilization of product, making sure that we were getting the most out of what we had. And then you move forward to Angeline. And the original concept for Angeline was supposed to be an open kitchen. And it was you know, my kind of desire to have this big wood-burning oven and keeping things really rustic and, and local and seasonal. But when I found the location, I had to kind of push that concept to the side. I changed a little bit, decided that I, I really wanted to focus a little bit more on refining Southern food. Taking my my influence, which has always been kind of Mediterranean style, Spanish, you know, provincial, French, Italian, that, that sort of upper Mediterranean style of cooking and viewing it through a Southern lens. That's kind of how we started, you know, just using a little bit more refinement, still making it feel warm and approachable and comfortable for people. Just trying to stay acutely aware of who you're cooking for and remembering that it's not, it's not about, I'm not cooking for myself. I mean, I have to, I have to engage myself from a professional standpoint, but ultimately I'm providing for someone. I think a lot of times that gets lost. People, chefs and cooks, they miss the mark and they're, they're just cooking at people and they're not necessarily cooking for people. That was kind of the, the focus with Angeline. And we had a great run for four years. Then I had the opportunity with the Elysian Bar. And I kind of went back to looking at it from the same perspective as I approached Sylvain. Not to say that it, the Elysian Bar is inspired by Sylvain, but I wanted to take kind of that creative process and the way I approached the, the kitchen. Because the kitchen at the Elysian Bar is small also. It's 600 square feet. We don't have a walk-in. So we're doing everything out of reach-in refrigeration. So we, we have to be very, very thoughtful and precise about about the, the production that's coming out of, out of the kitchen at the Elysian Bar. Always keeping it in all three restaurants, keeping it very seasonal, trying to keep it you know as locally supported as possible with small farms that are around around the area and that's kind of where those those three three different restaurants and three different experiences that's how they grew 2018 was a tough year you know and challenging year for you i think even beginning of 17 
So, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you had to close Angeline that because uh, of a term of a lease and, and uh, unfortunately, and then you had an opportunity f- uh, with a partnership that didn't go through with another project. So I, I'm just curious as a chef, and I think for the people that are listening and, and, you know, maybe students that are at culinary school and looking, you know, becoming a chef. So how, how were you able to handle this uh, succession of uh, unfortunate events? Closing Angeline was, and it's something that I'm, I'm still, from an emotional standpoint, still, you know, dealing with. There are things that, that come up that, that spark, you know, feelings. Anyone who's ever owned their own business understands the, the amount of pressure and stress and the amount of work that it takes and, and how much you have to commit of yourself in order to try to make it successful. Angeline was the culmination of 20 years of work. It was something that I always wanted. I always wanted to be able to have the opportunity and be fortunate enough to open my own place. And that's what Angeline represented. It was very difficult, you know, and it, it still in some ways is. I'm incredibly excited about the opportunity at the Elysian Bar. And it's been an amazing opportunity for me to to get back into a kitchen and focus on on cooking and food. But it is difficult when you, you go through, you know, kind of the ups and downs of that emotional process and seeing it close and then hoping that you're able to continue in business for yourself with another project and, and having that kind of fall through. But, you know, somebody really close to me reminds me all the time that it's just a chapter and it's not it's not an end. It's just, it's just a step in the process. It's a part of the overall experience of, of living, and you can let it defeat you if you want, but you know, then you don't, you don't open yourself up to what, what the future holds and what your future opportunities could be. I had thoughts, you know, maybe I shouldn't do this anymore. Maybe I, I, as much as I love what I do and I love cooking and I love restaurants, maybe I should pursue something else. And this is my opportunity to, to do that. But ultimately, you know, I decided that there were still things that I wanted to try to accomplish. And I still love the environment. I love the industry that I'm in. And I love being a part of that. You know, the other thing is, 20 over 20 years in a restaurant business will will kind of ruin you for doing anything else. It's hard for me. It would be very hard for me to step away from that environment to do something else. It's all I've focused on, you know, from a career standpoint for the past 20 plus years. So, I think ultimately you take those you those experiences, you learn from them, you grow, it makes you smarter, it makes you wiser and it kind of you know it helps to kind of toughen you up a little bit and get you prepared for your next your next challenge so if you would go back in time and then you had the possibility to give yourself one piece of advice what would it be oh my gosh that's tough just challenging challenging myself to continue to grow and to look at new experiences and new challenges as as ways to continue the process and to get better. And 
I would also challenge myself to take a little bit more time to travel, to experience things like that, because I think that's so important. It's really difficult when you're a line cook and you're you don't make a lot of money to try to you know take advantage of of situations like that. But that's one thing that I I really neglected throughout my career, and it's something that I think would have benefited me just to to see other culture and to experience it firsthand, and not just through photographs or books, but to feel it and taste it and really kind of involve yourself in it. That that's one thing that I that I wish I had done. I had been able to do more of. And it's one thing that I look forward to to doing now and especially with having children, you know, exposing my daughters to that. At the beginning you talked a little bit about your creative process. You mentioned that you start from the ingredients and then after that you are looking at different techniques. Anything else to add about how do you approach creation of a dish or a menu? Do you have any source of inspiration that comes even outside of food? I listen to, I mean, I listen to music, conversations with friends. I like to talk to people about what they've eaten recently that excites them. What do they enjoy? Getting thoughts from from others about their experiences. The cooks at Elysian, the Elysian Bar and I, and, and especially at Angeline, would talk a lot about what do we want to use and where are we going to source it and where are we going to go from there? Yeah, you know, so we would we would run through a bunch of different editions of, of one dish and just keep working it and refining it and trying different things until we hit on something that, that we were excited about. We felt, you know, it was really balanced in flavor. That's kind of always been part of the process for me. I'm not a chef that can just sit down and think about one dish and have it work perfectly the first time. I really have to play around with it. And I think that process is where a lot of my inspiration comes from. So how many iteration of a, of a, an idea of a dish, you know, are you going through before you know you're happy with it? Oh gosh, it's usually 3 4, you know, different preparations that we'll try depending on how much, you know, how much time and then there are even times when I've got something on the menu and we've cooked through it hundreds of times and then something will spark the idea for a change, you know, and it, it might just be that conversation with the cook who says, hey, chef, what if we what if we did this? You know, I thought about this. What if what if we tried preparing it this way and we'll give it a shot? And that might be what facilitates kind of a change and, and facilitates that, that creative process. It's always pretty collaborative. So what is your uh, latest ingredient obsession? A lot of vinegar, a lot of different vinegars, making vinegars in the restaurant. I found myself using a little bit of ground sumac more. I like it because of its, its bright, gives it a brightness. There's that little nuanced kind of bitterness to it and it adds a little bit of citrus component to it so that's something that that I've been using a little bit more so what are you making or the using the vinegar for we will use it as a finishing element to to a dish especially something that if it if it's rich a braise especially I'll finish the sauce with a little bit acid at pickup 
little bit of vinegar at pickup to to kind of give it a little bit of brightness to help cut through some of that that richness and and fat. I like to use acid and vinegar in concert with spice, you know, because of the the balancing effect that that has. So those are those are kind of the ways we'll lightly poach in kind of diluted poach vegetables with a little bit of vinegar or we'll, you know, like I said, finish sauces, that sort of thing. So I would like to pick up uh, your brain for the people that are listening and especially for the home cooks. So sure. let's take a common ingredients and we are talking about, um, you know, focusing on pork chops. So what would be your suggestion how a home cook can prepare pork chops at home with a southern flair? I, when it comes to pork chops, I, I typically always brine, especially thick, thicker pork chops. Pork loin, you know, the, the rack is usually, it's a leaner cut. And so brining helps to, to add flavor. And it's just a standard salt, sugar, herb brine that, that I'll put the, the chop in. I love to smoke them and then grill a little bit because it, it imparts a little bit of that kind of barbecue flavor, that, that Southern barbecue culture into it. And then after that, something really quick and bright because it, it's a delicate, in my mind, pork chops are, even though they're very substantial, they're still kind of a delicate flavor profile. So I don't like to, to cover them in anything really heavy. You know, so last night, something that we did is we've got these beautiful baby spring onions and we, we simply grilled them and then chopped them up. And I made a real quick relish with a little aged white balsamic vinegar and some extra virgin olive oil, or even something as simple as a bunch of bright, fresh herbs right out of the garden for a salsa verde or, or something like that. So keeping it pretty simple, you know, I think if you pull you pull from what's around, what's local and what's seasonal, then you can you can definitely add those little nuanced kind of southern southern flavors. And when you're saying that you are smoking the pork chop, how do you do that and how can I do that in my um, kitchen? Um, well, the easiest way to do it is if you have if you have a little outdoor grill, just get get some wood chips. They're available at, at every grocery store. I prefer fruit wood. So either cherry or apple or, or peach wood, sometimes you can find, but soak them and then set them in a little disposable metal pan and just kind of put them right on the burner or right on top of the coals. Build your coal bed off to one side of the grill and put the pork chop on the other side. Let those wood chips start kind of smoldering. So you're getting a little bit of indirect heat. You're not directly over the, you know, the flame or the, the coal bed, but you're imparting flavor through that and just let it, let it sit for, you know, 30, about 30 minutes or so, depending on how thick that chop is. And then you can take it off, remove the, you know, the wood chips and grill, finish it by grilling it. So you get a, a good little, you get that char kind of flavor from the, from the grill right on top of the coals or something. That sounds delicious, huh? And the, the good weather is going to arrive soon in, uh, in New Jersey. Let's say I pray for it every day. <laughs> I, I am going to try that. Sure. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, please. Absolutely. 
So uh, now it's the time, f- uh, you know, for the, the rapid fire questions. Okay. So where where do you go for a drink or a meal in New Orleans when you are off the clock and, of course, not at home? I love going to my friend's restaurants. There's so many, so many of the the men and women that I grew up cooking that now run kitchens and own restaurants of their own that I love going and seeing what they're doing and, and supporting them. Um, New Orleans is an incredibly collaborative and communal city. So one of my favorites right now is Ancora. And I also love Maypop, my Galata's place. Those are typically where I'll go. And for a drink? I actually, I don't drink anymore. So okay. I don't go out. I don't go out for cocktails as much, but I'm always down to go to coffee and get, I've got a, a very serious espresso problem. An addiction? So, yeah, well, yeah, in, in a way, for sure. <laughs> so what do you do in New Orleans for that? Oh, my gosh. Spitfire Coffee is one of, my, one of my favorites. We're at the Elysian Bar. We have a small little coffee shop. So I, I drive them crazy, you know, making dirty chai and cappuccino oh, yeah. and, and stuff <laughs> like that for me all the time. Those are typically my go-tos. So what are the top three cookbooks that inspired you the most? Cooking by Hand from Paul Bertoli. And let's see. Guy, you're really putting me on the spot right now. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Frank Stitt's original cookbook from Highlands Bar and Grill. That's something that he's kind of the godfather of Alabama, Alabama cuisine, and, and somebody who I've always admired. That's one as well. Let's see. Most recently trying to remember some of the ones that I've been kind of thumbing through so many different vegetable books that I've kind of been looking looking through right now. I guess Jeremy Fox's book as well has been a huge a huge source of kind of inspiration for me. What is your favorite classic New Orleans dish? Trout amadine. And your favorite Louisiana made ingredient? Hoyer's cane syrup. So spring is, is coming. So what are the spring ingredients that you look forward to cooking with? I'm always excited. I use it. It's so funny. People I work with joke with me all the time, but fennel is such a huge part of. I get really excited when fennel starts showing up, and and spring onions, green garlic, peas. Uh, I could cook peas all day long. And last, what is your favorite food memory? My grandmother would cook this dish that she called cream potatoes. And we would go out to the garden. We would dig creamer, little creamer, red skin potatoes, new potatoes, come back and wash them. And she would cook them in this light cream-based sauce with lots of black pepper and then served it with sliced cucumbers that were, were tossed with a little bit of salt and white vinegar. And that... People ask you what your what your last meal would be. That would be it for me. And that has such a strong emotional tie that it's definitely one of my fondest, fondest memories. I want to thank you so much for being on um, the podcast Flavors Unknown. It was great to have you for 45, 50 minutes here. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, thank you for your patience and, and the time and, uh, you know, answering questions. I wish you all the best with your new adventure at the Elysian Bar, and uh, and hopefully I I you know hope that I'm going to um, 
come back to New Orleans and uh, one day eat into your new restaurant. Yeah, well, thank you. I I appreciate that. I'd love to chance to be able to to see you again and chat and uh, hopefully cook for you again sometime. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. No worries if you were not able to write down some information that our guest was talking about, because you can find all of those in the episode show note on flavorsunknown.com. If you have suggestions about who would be great to have as a guest on the show, please answer the question in the comment section of the contact page on the website flavorsunknown.com. I will do my best to contact them and try to see if I can get them on the show. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.